0: He was a very mentally ill man. They are more than their crimes.
1: There came a point where a death warrant did issue.
2: I was going to have to share with him over the phone what he knew was coming.
1: All of our pro bono cases are extremely important and can often change the lives of our clients but when we represent someone sentenced to death, the stakes cannot be higher. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Lovells. Since the creation of the firm's pro bono department in 1970, we've been front and center in the fight for criminal justice. Hogan Lovells attorneys Pat Brannon and Liz Lockwood are joining us now to tell us about their representation of inmates facing execution. Let's start by discussing the case of John Ferguson. Pat, tell us a little about the case and how the firm got involved.
0: Thank you, Kate. Uh, The firm came to represent John Ferguson starting in about 1987. The ABA Death Penalty Project, that's the American Bar Association, was frantic at that point to find counsel for scores and scores of inmates on death row. We had gone through a period of time where the Supreme Court had held the death penalty, the way it was being applied in many of the states unconstitutional. The states were going back and revising their statutes, and there were many, many people who had legal remedies available to them and no lawyers to bring them. So they came to Barrett Prettyman, um, one of the great giants of litigation in the history of our firm, and he agreed to take the case of John Ferguson who is was a Florida inmate under multiple sentences of death. The basic issue that we kept coming back to was that judges and juries never heard the substantial mitigating evidence about his very difficult childhood and his extensive history of mental illness. He had been shot in the head at the age of 21, had organic brain damage. He was repeatedly institutionalized by the state of Florida itself as dangerous to himself and others. He was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic repeatedly over the course of decades. He had hallucinations. He believed he was the Prince of God and had a very special relationship with God. Uh, the eight murders for which he was convicted occurred right after a release from the state hospital despite those warnings in in his mental health state
1: so during the time period that we represented mr ferguson um, we represented him of course for a long time so it it took many years for those challenges to to run their course tell us a little bit about uh, what happened during those during those years well, there were
0: actual trial proceedings in which we investigated the facts, found witnesses, put put on evidence actually in, in front of a judge. Uh, there were appeals available then. Um, when uh, we didn't get relief for him from the death sentence, we would make some progress uh, on issues, but never got quite to the goal line we went through that whole course of trial appeals and then seeking supreme court review at the state level and the federal level people sometimes wonder why these things take so long they do take a very long time that whole set of cycles took about 20 years the law was also changing and evolving you'll recall that the supreme court uh, and other courts have become more receptive to arguments about limited mental capacity to understand the death sentence to understand what will happen to you when you're executed and why it's being done. Uh, and we tried to avail ourselves. We were kind of on a changing landscape even though we had we had two trial records because the law was evolving and we were finding facts that Mr. Ferguson's lawyers, during his criminal trials had never uncovered or tried to present to anyone.
1: So over the course of those years, you know, they reached a point where those lines of potential relief were exhausted. What, what happens to death row inmates when they exhaust those lines of, of post-conviction state and federal relief?
0: Well, they simply remain on death row, which is a horrible life a very, very harsh life, um, until there's a death warrant. They go up and down in their hopefulness and expectations about possibly getting relief, and then are crushed when it is not forthcoming. They're surrounded by other people going through similar experiences. It's about as awful a situation as you can imagine a human being being in, but that's the status quo for a death row inmate until a death warrant issues.
1: So there came a point, uh, of course, where a death warrant did issue from Mr. Ferguson. Can you talk about that day and and what happened after that day?
0: Turned out not to be the worst day of my life that was yet to come, but it was a terrible day. It was September 5th, 2012. I happened to be on vacation. Um, It came completely out of the blue. One of the things that is... Um, bizarre and difficult about these cases is that the inmate and their his counsel have virtually no control over the timing. We had no idea this was coming. Um, Needed to call Mr. Ferguson and call his mother. Um, My job on the team came to be uh, especially during that time period, but but had devolved to be uh, one of being a primary contact with him and with his family and supporters. There were a lot of people out there, especially in faith communities, who were very, uh, very supportive of getting him some relief. We made those phone calls, um, which was harrowing. And then one starts, it's kind of like going down the big dip in the roller coaster in a way, although not at all fun because uh, the issuance of a warrant triggers some new potential avenues of relief that we couldn't use before. We were able to seek uh, a mental health evaluation as a matter of right in Florida at that point for him. Uh, And there were other arguments that we could bring to bear. For example, the method of execution, legal, uh, lethal injection was becoming very controversial. We were skeptical that the state had branded unexpired supplies of the drugs necessary to accomplish an execution and so we started vigorously uh challenging those steps you and and others on the team my role was mainly to keep the client informed to be in very close touch with him visiting him uh on as frequent a basis as we could manage dealing with his family and supporters and friends
1: And in addition to all of those roles you were playing, you were at the prison on October 23rd, 2012, uh, with another colleague of ours, Chris Hanman, uh, on the date that the execution was was set. Can you talk a little bit about that day?
0: Well, that was an amazing day because we had been under a stay, a federal court stay of execution while we raised these issues. Um, Once again, I was away from the office and thought we were safe. Uh, But there were legal developments going on day to day. And the stay was lifted uh, on the 22nd and basically in the middle of the night on the 22nd, the date was set for the next day. Ashley, our amazing paralegal on this case, had said to me on the 22nd, can you get on a plane and come down for a legal visit just in case the worst happens? So I had a plane ticket and arrangements to come down and barreled to Stark, Florida and the Florida State Prison as fast as I could get there. Uh, and Chris Hanman uh, from Washington uh, was trying to do the same. Uh, we had to have friends and colleagues in our miami office implore the governor's office to allow me to go in there is a very ritualized set of protocols that the prison goes through on the day of an execution it's weird. It, it feels sort of ritualistic. They are really unwilling to deviate from them. And by the time I got there, uh, having left at six in the morning, they said, your time for the legal visit is over and didn't want to let me in, um, but did with with uh, help from our colleagues. And um, at the appointed time at 6 p.m., Chris and I, families of the victims, media, prison officials we um, were all gathered to be witnesses to the execution, but they herded us into the chapel instead of taking us uh, to that, to that uh, room. And we waited and we waited and we waited. And after about oh, two or three hours, Chris leaned over to me and said, this is starting to feel like us, <laughs> by which he meant, <laughs> and it, it was us. It was the, you and the team, Des Hogan and the amazing team of associates in Washington, um, just beating down the doors to stop this. It was highly irregular for an execution to be scheduled this way. And on this timing, we had issues that had not been exhausted. And long story short, in the middle of the night, they stood up and told us a stay has been issued, uh, and we. Needed to leave. It was over for that day. The Eleventh uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal court of appeals that has um, coverage of Florida, had issued a stay, and uh, that gave us the opportunity to do another round of uh, another round of pleading for him. We learned later that John had been strapped to a gurney. For all the hours that Chris and I were sitting in the chapel, expecting that at any time um, they would start the lethal injection procedure,
1: having been in the conference room um, on the other side of that, I, I, I second your reaction. It was it was an incredible few hours. This was a um, case that took us over twenty years at the firm. There were many, many partners and associates uh, over the years, but who was involved in those those last efforts?
0: I wish I could name the hundreds of names because we stood on their shoulders. We we dug back into the briefs that people were writing in the eighties and nineties all the time, but. Um, You, Kate Stetson, Chris Hanman, and um, Des Hogan played key partner roles. Barrett Prettyman never faded from this case. Um, He was in a care home at the age of 88 by the time we came to the end of this case the following year, and we were still sending briefs up to him to be edited and to take his brilliant edits. Uh, Ben Lewis, uh, Erica Knievel-Songer, Marissa Cruz, Sarah Cummings, Katie Marshall, Elizabeth Josie, and Ashley Stanzik. There were some weddings (laughs) along the way Mm -hmm. among that group. So I may not have, I don't think I have everyone's married name, Uh, but that was the core group. And they not only did amazing legal work, there were times I remember meetings when we would have a development and Des would look at the group and say, okay, now we need to do the next petition for stay. And they'd kind of look at them like, okay partner we wrote that two weeks ago <laughs> we have a draft all we need to do is update it. Um, these associates became my heroes yeah,
1: they were they were an extraordinary group they are an extraordinary group it is so true you you met with John Ferguson many times over those years what what was it like to speak with and to counsel someone under a death sentence
0: uh John, Um, was close to my age. Uh, That was about where the similarities between us ended. Um, In everything that people like us, Kate, are privileged and wealthy, he had nothing. Um, He was a very mentally ill man. He was the most troubled person I think I've ever been in a room with one-on-one. Our job was to keep him apprised of what was going on, to seek his guidance as the client about what we should be doing, strategies. Sometimes if we pursued one path, we'd have to give something else up. That's very challenging stuff for a client. He he was smart. He had left school at about ninth grade, but he was a smart man, but he suspected everyone around him. And, and typically we would start a visit kind of comfortably, And it would become clear as the visit developed that he was questioning what we were doing and questioning everybody and everything around him as being uh, conspired against him. It made it very hard to work with him. Um, I became convinced that he believed he could not be killed by the state of Florida that the lethal injection arguments in particular were because Florida knew it did not have drugs that could kill him, that his relationship with God was such that that was not possible. And especially after that one save on October 23rd, 2012, I think he he really thought this would never happen, which made it very, very difficult, uh, really not possible in the way one would want to to do for him what we had to do. Um, it, so at the same time, um, we this was challenging. And uh, at the same time, we developed a real relationship with him. Um, it took a long time. It changed after that October 23rd event. I think he started to believe it wasn't complete, it wasn't consistent, but there were, there were times you could see some trust breaking through. Uh, he sent you and me Mother's Day cards that year. Um, my last contact visit with him at the prison, he said he had some property that he had left for me at the gate. Um, he was he and and for me to pick up. I had he had never left anything for me to pick up before. He had crocheted a beret for me. Um, this big man you know, in prison on death row for all these counts of murders, crocheted. Uh, he had nicknames for people on the team. You were Big Kate. Barrett was the general. Um, <laughs> he he had seen very little in his life of love or closeness or uh, connection with other people. And he said to us a few times toward the end, you know, what are the chances that out of all the people in the world that we would meet and connect and come to understand each other. And it's funny when you represent clients, you expect that you are affecting their life and their future. But John's picture is in my office at eye level. And every day I remember not just him, but, but what it represents for someone to go through the justice system and go through what he went through. And how important our work is.
1: I think that in many ways is a response to a question that you hear, I hear, and Liz and others hear a lot, which is what, why, why do we, why does the firm spend millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of hours uh, in in legal help, free help, representing a convicted murderer? Um, you know, some people say that's not a good use of pro bono resources. I think part of what you were just talking about is the response, but what is what is what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I came into this not how should I say this? The death penalty wasn't my issue. It wasn't something that I was sure uh, how I felt about it. I'm the kind of lawyer. I'm a litigator. I revered the justice system. I know it makes mistakes because it's a human institution. And I've seen, I've won cases I should have lost and lost cases I should have won. Any litigator with decades of experience, that's true. But uh, as you said at the very outset, Kate, the stakes here are the ultimate stakes. And I became convinced that because this is a human institution that cannot be perfect that has to foreclose issues and move forward and come to a result that it really isn't right to put someone's life at stake, even if the crimes were terrible, even if um, there are people who are very, very uh, upset with this person's continued life. Uh, I, I like to think and, and want to think that, the work we did for John had a bigger impact. There is a big national effort on many levels, both in the individual cases, in state legislatures, in many ways to stop the death penalty. We had demonstrations um, the day of his execution and vigils all over Florida, in London, in Boston, in Italy. We had editorials from the New York Times, Mother Jones, heaven's sakes. I may never be able to say that again in my career. Mother Jones was on our side. Uh, The Harvard Crimson uh, was on our side. Mental health professionals, the American Bar Association. I think all of that matters, and that each one of these cases matters toward working toward a time when we see this for what it is and stop doing it.
1: So there came a point where there did come an end to our representation uh, on August 5th, 2013. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: I can try. Um, Chris Handman and I, again, went to Stark, Florida. Uh, for the scheduled execution. We were able to see John the night before. We brought stacks of cards and letters and well wishes from people really all over the world. We were able to be with him for his last meal. Um, John being John, the guards kept saying, Oh man, you can get steak from, you know, downtown, you can get a pizza. He asked for the usual come, you know, the usual meal as he said that the guys were getting, because I think he believed it was a day like any other day. Um, We were able to hug him. It was the only time we were able to do that uh, in the entire time that I had visited him. I don't know even how many times. Uh, And we, Uh, were witnesses along with families of the victims and others. Uh, Thanks to the efforts of you and the team, we had gotten assurance that the execution would be conducted with an unexpired, branded, not a compounding pharmacy drug. That was almost unprecedented that we were able to get that information and that assurance. Um, His last words were, I am the Prince of God, and I will rise again.
1: And I can tell you, again, from my perspective, um, being in a large conference room on the top floor of the law firm in Washington that night uh, with Barrett Prettyman, who came in um, to sit vigil with us uh, during the time of the execution with all of the team members you mentioned earlier, with the CEO of our firm, uh, with the chief financial officer of our firm, uh, and with many, many other partners, associates, staff, alumni, who came through that conference room and sat with us, um, it was it was a profoundly a profoundly uh, grief haunting night. Um, we're recording this on August sixth, twenty twenty. So the seventh anniversary of his passing it was yesterday. I remember it every August fifth.
0: Mm-hmm. I always will, and and I should say, Kate, everything you said is exactly right. I, I I emailed the CEO of the firm that night, saying I feel like I'm being on the carried on the shoulders of hundreds of people, and he broke back instantly and said, "Well, you are," it, and that's true. It really. I should was. also acknowledge, Kate, there is a death penalty community out there in this country that is extraordinary. I mean, we were counsel of record, but the people who do this every day, who are also my heroes, people in the various public defender offices and other organizations that take these cases on in large numbers, they would take a call any hour of the day or night. They offered all kinds of help and expertise. And that night in particular, our phones just rang nonstop. They had been there and had been through this and they were concerned and they knew how hard it is they're just you just can't say enough about the community we joined as a pro bono practice and as a law firm by going through these
1: cases that is that is true it is a it's an incredibly um powerful committed devoted responsive network of death penalty uh uh, advocates across the across the country it's really extraordinary thank you pat
0: Thank you, Kate.
1: So the Ferguson case was a, a case where we represented John Ferguson for for many years, in fact, over a couple decades, and weathered many, many storms with him. But there are some times when the firm finds itself stepping into the middle of a hurricane uh, right at the very end of a process. And I want to talk a little bit with Liz Lockwood now about... Uh, her work on behalf of another death row inmate, Tai Chin Pryor. So, Liz, tell us tell us a little about Tai Pryor and how the firm came to represent him.
2: Yeah, so the eye of an hurricane that that feels about right. Um, tai um, had been on death row in Texas, which has a very large death row, one of the larger death rows in the country, um, for. A number of years not as not as long as John Ferguson Um, but he was really towards the end of his appeals process Um, and we got word of his case through uh, pro bono listserv because uh, the attorney who had been representing him felt like she was unable to effectively do so and Um, had some concern that he would be getting an execution date soon. Um, And so at the time, we knew very little about Ty. We just knew that he had had a series of failed appeals and, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about, really um, ineffective, to say the least, legal representation over the years. And we knew that he needed help. Um, and so in the midst of these conversations about Ty and what he might need, he actually received an execution date. And in Texas, they typically give you a four-month um, notice. And so it was March 2017, and he received an execution date for the end of July. And rather than walk away, I think we all just knew, okay, this is it, Um and let's jump in and see what we can do. So we agreed to represent Ty before even meeting
1: him. So you did. You did step into the to the middle of the hurricane, and the odds, as you said, just because of the the status of Ty's post conviction appeals and the um, the arguments that he had already exhausted uh, before the firm came in to represent him, the odds were were stacked against you from the beginning. So what? What motivated you to to step in and take on this case?
2: Yeah, well, as I sort of alluded to, you know, um, so death row prisoners, they are obviously facing the most severe penalty that the criminal justice system offers. Um, And before that penalty can be carried out, there are three sets of appeals that they are afforded as a right. Um, And they can pursue additional appeals after that, but it becomes um, very difficult to do so. There are a number of hurdles. And for Ty, all three of those um, appeals that he had um, automatically afforded to him, he went through those with some of the worst legal representation that we had seen. Um, And I can say that with some confidence because... His attorneys for the third of those sets of appeals um, consisted of a real estate and probate attorney from California um, who had never handled a death row case and who had a Wikipedia um, printout on capital punishment in her files, um, and a disbarred attorney who was working behind the scenes. and. You know, no matter what you might think about the death penalty, um, I think we can all agree that you want to feel like the process um, has been set up in a way that they had a right to tell their story and their case. And from outside looking in, you could just tell immediately that that had not been done for Ty.
1: If I remember correctly, the the Wikipedia printout on the death penalty had a, a little posted on it that said research. Yep, just that's to right. just to bring the point home that a California probate attorney should not have been handling that critical third appeal. Is that is that type of legal representation common among death row prisoners?
2: It is shockingly common. Um, I have represented. Uh, I don't know, a, around a dozen death row prisoners in a variety of different venues now. And um, I can say with confidence that every single one of them, either at their trial or their state appeal right after that, or their federal appeal right after that, had um, you know not the type of legal representation that you would want if you were facing a penalty like that, and if you were in our shoes coming from our positions of privilege. Um, and you know, oftentimes, death row prisoners get a lucky break. And someone comes in, say, at the state post-conviction level or at the direct appeal level after the trial has been done and they've received their sentence, and they get that really great representation that will give them a second shot. Um, and and you know make all the difference for them, but most of the time, <laughs> that's not what happens. And so, um, as at, at least at Hogan, from the from the cases we've talked about today and the other c- cases that I've been involved in, we are typically called in when the cases are incredibly difficult, and you need sort of the 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 most resources. Um, and some of the hardest workers and the most creative legal thinkers to jump in and try to figure out how to get these guys, mostly guys, out of it.
1: It's always struck me as one of the one of the deepest and worst ironies of this profession and of our justice system, that the people who are facing the worst penalty receive the worst representation, by and large, um, as a rule. This was particularly poor, but as a rule, that's true
2: you're exactly right, this is an irreversible penalty. Once it is carried out, there is, it's not like it's a big monetary judgment. It's not like we're talking about 20 years in prison, which is also severe. Once it's carried out, there's literally nothing that can be done to undo it. Um, And yet time and time again, we're seeing these cases um, and it's getting a little better, I think, but we're seeing, you know, exactly the cases like ties.
1: Right. So at the time that you came in, knowing the uphill battle that you were facing, what what were the arguments that you presented uh, on Ty's behalf?
2: So we knew from the start that we basically only had one, um, one avenue of relief for all intents and purposes available to us. Um, and it required arguing that the um, attorneys um, who – um, the California attorney and the disbarred attorney had essentially committed fraud on the court, um, right? So that this was an extraordinary circumstance that warranted um, setting aside a judgment in federal court, which is only done in sort of the most um, rare um, situation where you feel like there you don't have confidence in in that decision. And so we argued that, you know, based on the representation that he had received, um, and because the court was not aware that a disbarred attorney was actually doing all of the work behind the scene on Ty's case, that this this third um, appeal that Ty had should be um, set aside. And we said that that mattered because um, over the course of Uh, Ty's case, his attorneys at every step of the way had failed to investigate significant mitigating circumstances like John Ferguson's um, case that would have possibly caused the jury to give him a lesser sentence. So Ty, like many, I mean, I would guess most um, individuals on death row had a really difficult upbringing. He had a um, traumatic childhood marked by physical and sexual abuse. Um, and um, it wasn't uncovered. The I think the investigation that had been done before was a total of like four to 12 hours or something like that. Um, and all of that matters because in a situation where the client does not have a, Um, claim of innocence, what you're trying to do is convince the jury that this is a human being who is more than the worst thing that they have done in their life and that because of the circumstances that contributed to this person's upbringing, they should basically have mercy and let them spend the rest of their life in prison um, instead of being executed and taken away from their families,
1: what was the what was the eventual outcome of of Ty's case, Liz?
2: So you know, as with all end stage death penalty litigation, there were sort of a series of last minute hail marys. Um, and even though we only had four months, we sort we we planned for this. It all for us came down though to the last four days. So, we had, um, Ty's execution was scheduled for a Thursday. On Monday, I went and visited him in Texas for the last time. And when you go and visit a, a client on death row, you can't bring up phone or anything in. Um, and so, it was sort of blissful almost because for four hours, I had no idea what was going on in the world. I knew that we had our most promising claim pending. um, And I knew that there was a good chance that by the time I walked out of um, Polunsky, Texas death row, that I would know what had happened to that. But at the time I could just spend four hours really talking with my client. And um, Ty and I, even though we only met in person, you know, a handful of times, um, had a really great relationship. And I have some vivid memories of the things that we talked about. But overall, I just ha- I just remember feeling like I was talking with a man who had so much more to him um, than what he was facing. And I was um, – <laughs> I, I laughed a lot that day um because Ty had a great sense of humor. And so I walked out of um of Polanski and sort of as expected, uh found out that our first claim at the district court had been denied.
1: I know this is really hard, Liz. I'm I'm grateful for you yeah. trying to trying to talk through it. And while, while you're thinking about it, I, the other observation I would make just um, to resonate with something that, li- that that Pat said as well is just how meaningful it is, not just for you and for Pat, but for the clients that you're representing to have that kind of human connection for exactly the reason that you mentioned, for exactly the reason that Pat mentioned, these are... You know, many of them, most of them people who have not been shown a lot of human dignity or engagement in their lives. And just for Ty to have had, you know, those hours talking with you, I think was was profoundly important to remind him that, that he was a human being and that people were fighting for him as well.
2: Yeah, you're so right. And you know, and I think that's why it was such a gut punch when you walk out of this um, what I, what I knew was my last, uh, you know, time with him in person and, um, standing there in the Polanski parking lot by yourself, reading your emails that, you know, not only has this been denied, but the team is spinning up the next, um, the, the next brief, which was filed, I think, within 24 hours or less. Um, and, you know, for, for Thai and and so I guess then to sort of fast forward, we um, that was Monday, Tuesday we come I come back and we had a, a series of appeals after that, um, and then unfortunately, as as with all things, we were down to the last day waiting for a series of courts to um, issue some decisions, and I remember just like in John's case, we were all sitting up on a conference room. Um, at the top floor of Hogan, um, with many people outside of our team who were just there to support us. Um, and we were on the phone with Ty, um, having a great conversation with some jokes that we remember and, uh, reminisce about still, Kate, um, and got a phone call in the other room from the Supreme Court, um, to, to let me know that our last appeal had been denied, um. And then I remember coming back in the room, and unfortunately, none of us were with Ty. That was his wish. Um, I, I, a member of our team who got to know him, our mitigation specialist, um, Salima, who got to know him very well, was there with, with him, um, and I know he took great comfort in that. But our legal team was fighting for him from afar. And I just, I remember uh, being in that room with you, Kate, um, and others, knowing that I was going to have to share with him over the phone what he knew was coming, Yeah. but that doesn't make it any easier. Um, but he took it with such grace. Um, and most of all, Kate, as you'd sort of mentioned, he said, you know, I can't remember if it was in that conversation or otherwise, but it felt for like for the first time in his life that he had lawyers that were really fighting for him. Um, and I know for him and his and his family, his mom, who I talked to after that, that meant the world to them.
1: Sorry, now it's my turn to gather myself. Uh, one of one of the things that I think about a lot with respect to to both the the Ferguson case and Ty Pryor's case is um, Liz. What you just mentioned, which is the the people in the room with you at the end, and one of the things that really struck me that I think is important. To talk about when we talk about the history of our work in this area is, you know, for the Ferguson case where we represented John for for such a long time, and we had people in the room who went back decades. We had Barrett Prettyman, who I think at that point was eighty nine, um, and we had some of the youngest um, you know joiners to our firm in that room. For Ty Pryor, one of the things that I remember very vividly uh, is that we had summer associates with us. We had the the very newest members of our firm, or hoped for members of our firm, who were sitting in with us, keeping the vigil that we were keeping, and you know experiencing what we were experiencing. And my you know, my my hope, if there is a hope that kind of springs from this, is that you know, the those summer associates will continue to go forward and carry on the tradition that. That that Hogan and Hartson and Hogan levels for so so many years um, have have continued on. So Pat and Liz, you know, I I think that each of you have have spoken a little bit to this, but just by by way of of closing out the discussion, neither neither John's case nor ties ended the way that you would have hoped that we would have hoped. Why why was the work important nevertheless? And maybe Pat will start with you.
0: Well, listening, Liz, to you and your wonderful dedication to this, actually, something that John said is always where I start on this. Kate, you may remember we were on the phone giving him some bad news about a development in his case, and he was quiet for a second. And then he said, you know, the guys down here, when they get news like this, say, it is what it is. It is what it is. He said, I think that's wrong. It's more than it is. And That's the way I've come to feel about this work and the relationships that you all have been describing so beautifully. You represent a client, you file briefs, you can summarize it on a docket, you can summarize it from our time records. There are a lot of ways of looking at it, but it's one of the biggest things I've ever participated in these anniversaries are meaningful the people are meaningful I don't know where that's going I don't know where the ripples of that lead the warden in Florida who looked at me on October 23rd and said you know this is hard for us too and I just wanted to grab him and say well then let's do something about it I don't know where it's going but it's more than it is and it's going somewhere
1: Liz how about you
2: Yeah, you know, I think we have a justice system that so often um, fails to see the humanity and people. And that, to me, is what this work is all about, is reminding people really forcefully that these are human beings who deserve... um, the best legal representation that they can get. Um, And yes, a number of these um, people have um, committed terrible crimes and there are, there are people that are affected by that. And this does nothing. Their pain matters too, but for our clients, um, they are discarded from the moment that they are arrested, frankly. And they are more than their crimes. And for me, this work is all about, even though it's really painful in the end, or it can be really painful in the end, um, it's about doing everything you can to give your clients um, a voice and force the justice system to
1: recognize
2: them as people.
1: I think that's so well said. And and Pat, I agree. it, it is It is more than what it is. Thank you both so much. I, I, I know that um, this, this was a, a, a difficult and deep conversation for all of us, but I just want to say how proud I am to be your colleague. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Kate. Same to you, Kate. Thank you so much.
1: Beyond the criminal justice system, Hogan Lovells is also committed to achieving economic justice. We have a long history of using our resources, skills, and influence to address the intractable problem of institutional poverty. In the next episode, we'll examine our efforts on the front lines of that struggle. We fought for American workers in the Deep South, and we fought against efforts to end important federal jobs programs. We hope you'll join us.